Good to see you all. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. This morning in our study in Matthew's Gospel, we come to the most famous, and many say the greatest, sermon Jesus preached during his earthly ministry. It covers Matthew chapters 5 through 7 and is known as the Sermon on the Mount. As we pointed out last week, the sermon begins with the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are the introduction to the sermon and lay the foundation for this remarkable and revolutionary teaching. Remarkable because it only contains 107 verses. And yet nothing ever taught on this earth has had the ability to change so many lives. And revolutionary and that it marked the beginning of a new order a dramatic change in the revelation of God to his people. No more would the people of God live by the law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But now Jesus tells them to love their enemies, to bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. This was a new standard of life, a new approach to living, which Jesus is going to tell us is what true happiness and blessedness is based upon. A way of life whose emphasis is not on externals, that's law, but on internals. Focusing not on what you do, but on what you are. Very important point. As we mentioned last week, there is no way you can do for God all that he desires you to do until you first are for God all that he wants you to be in Christ. That's why we said last week with tongue-in-cheek, these are called be-attitudes and not do-attitudes. They are the inward, inward attitudes found in the heart of a person who is a believer. And that's why it's important to point out once again that Jesus didn't direct the Sermon on the Mount at the multitudes. He directed it at his disciples, those who were already saved. We saw this in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where we read, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. He departed from the multitudes. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. It's very clear that this sermon was not intended for the multitudes. It was intended for Jesus' disciples to teach them, and of course us also, the principles of kingdom living right now. And that's why the Beatitudes are presented first in this sermon. It's because they present to us the kingdom attitudes which lead to kingdom actions or living. As we said last week, until a person receives Jesus Christ into their heart as Lord and Savior... Well, the Spirit of God is not in them. But once they do that, He comes inside of them, and the Spirit of God gives them a new heart. See, if God can change a person's heart, He can change a person's life. Religion tries to change a person from the outside in, but it never works its way past the surface. You can look holy and right and clean and righteous religiously to the world, but God knows the heart. God looks at the heart. And God wants to reach into the heart. He wants to change a heart through the new birth by accepting Christ. Because when God changes a heart, it will work its way out into a changed life. And that's the idea here. The Beatitudes speak of the attitudes that the Spirit of God gives a person when they are born again. And then, of course, that leads to kingdom living, which Jesus begins to get into in verse 13 of chapter 5. Now, as we go through these Beatitudes one by one, we're going to see that each Beatitude describes a characteristic of a person who is truly blessed and then gives the corresponding benefit to the person who possesses this quality. And so we read in the first beatitude, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
And so a quality or a characteristic of somebody who is truly blessed, one of the characteristics is they are poor in spirit. What is the result of that? Well, to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now, some would turn that around, listen, and say, blessed in spirit are the poor. That's a social gospel. Blessed in spirit are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But folks, there is nothing necessarily blessed about being poor. Nor does being poor guarantee a person a place in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, poor people can love money just as much as rich people and have just as much pride as anybody. This has nothing to do with physical poverty. Remember now, these beatitudes deal with the inward attitudes of the heart, not the outward actions of a person's life. Jesus made that clear when he said, blessed are the poor in what? Spirit. These are internal things he's talking about. Religion focuses on the outward. God wants to get at the heart because if he can change a heart, it will overflow and produce a changed life. It always starts in the heart. And only Christianity, by the way, can reach into a person's heart and change them. David said, create in me a clean heart, O God. Only God can change a heart. And therefore, only God can really produce a changed life. But this idea of poor, blessed are the poor in spirit. The word poor there translates the Greek word to kos, which literally means a shrinking from something or someone. I want you to listen to this carefully. This is so critical to understanding the very first point, uh, not only the Beatitudes and the whole Sermon on the Mount, but really the very point at which somebody enters the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, tokas. This Greek word, tokas, speaks of the kind of poverty that reduces a person to a beggar who cringes and cowers somewhere in a dark corner because he's ashamed to show his face, absolutely ashamed at his condition. This Greek word speaks of total destitution, like someone who is severely handicapped and cannot work at all. Think of somebody who is like a quadriplegic, who absolutely cannot work at all and depends entirely on the gifts and generosity of others to survive. Now, the Greeks did have another word for poor, penace, which was used to describe a person who worked a little and barely made enough to live, barely made enough to survive, a person who lived just above the poverty line, but still somebody who was able to work and provide his basic necessities. That is not the, the person that Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is saying, and listen, he is saying, blessed are the spiritual beggars. Blessed are the destitute in spirit. Blessed are the spiritual paupers, the spiritually bankrupt, who cringe and cry out to God for mercy. They are the happy ones. Why? Because to them and to them alone belong the kingdom of heaven is the idea. You see, folks, a person must be to cast in spirit to enter the kingdom of God, not even Panace. He can't even think he can work a little bit for it. He must realize, or she must realize, that they are destitute and bankrupt spiritually and can do nothing to earn salvation. And again, to be poor in spirit means poor in the inside. Listen to how God put it. First of all, in Isaiah 66, verse 2, it says, But on this one I will look, says the Lord, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. This is the one I'm going to pay attention to. This is the one I'm going to look favorably on, God is saying. In Psalm 34, verse 18, it says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart 
and save such as have a contrite spirit. See, the idea is that God pays attention to the humble, not to the proud. Turn to Luke chapter 18. Let me show you how this works. I'm sure you're familiar with this portion of Scripture. Luke 18, starting in verse 9. Also he, Jesus, spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. These would be religionists. The Pharisees, of course, would be the epitome of this. But these would be uh, akin to all those people who are very religious. And you know what? Very religious people are very intolerant and condemning uh, and condescending to others who are not so religious. So Jesus said he told this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. He said two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Now folks, you can't get two people that were at opposite ends of the spectrum like these two. All right, This is about as far apart as you can get. On the one end you had the Pharisee. Of course in those days the Pharisees were looked at as the most holy people in society. I mean, they were the epitome of holiness. I mean, they kept the law down to the smallest detail. They even tithed to God from the seeds of their herb gardens, all right? On the other end of the spectrum, you have the tax collectors. These were the worst in society. The Jews believed that these guys were so bad they couldn't even possibly be saved. So what Jesus does is he makes the villain the hero and the hero the villain. And when he did these kinds of things, it's just, ooh, it's just frustrated the Pharisees. And the religious established, turned society on its ear. It was just completely contrary to everything they had come to believe in. So Jesus, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God wasn't even listening. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. Wow. He had a high opinion of himself. Yeah, look at all the eyes in there, right? I, I. Sounds like a pirate, doesn't he? In verse 13, And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Here's the bombshell. I tell you, Jesus said, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. We could rename this parable the parable of the good man who went to hell and the bad man that went to heaven. Now we know there are no such thing as good people apart from Christ, but the Pharisees thought they were good, right? All of society thought they were good, and yet they were still, had not been washed of their sinfulness. The tax collector, he knew he was a sinner, and he came to God for mercy, and God shows mercy to the humble, but resists the proud. There's a lot of people in our society who think they're good people, they're going to wind up going to, heaven, wind up going to hell. And a lot of folks who have lived pretty rotten lives, yet have received Christ, and of course, are going to be going to heaven. And it's going to shock a lot of people in the day of judgment who did not receive Christ but were very religious when they stand before Jesus and hear him say, I never knew you. Depart from me. But this is the opposite of poor in spirit. This is proud in spirit Jesus is talking about here. Remember now, in James chapter 4, verse 6, James said, God resists the proud but gives what? 
grace to the humble. Why is that so important? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not the result of any good works that we do, so that nobody can boast when they get to heaven that they got there by being good. It's a total gift of God's grace that we receive through our faith. And the man or woman who is poor in spirit is a person who is willing to be governed by God. That's, see, that's a very important point here. The idea also behind poor in spirit is somebody who is broken of pride to the point where they say to God, Lord, I want you to take control of my life. Any man or woman who is poor in spirit is willing to do that. They're willing to say, God, I have governed my life all my life and I've made a mess of it. But Lord, I want you now to take charge. I want you to take authority over my life. And by the way, that's where Christianity begins, folks, and that's where it is lived every day. In that constant state of surrendering self to God to be controlled by Him. We have to understand something that being a Christian fundamentally doesn't mean going to church or reading your Bible even or, you know, lighting a candle or praying the rosary, anything like that. Being a Christian is all about getting off the throne of your life and letting Jesus sit down as king. That's what it's all about. And those people who are proud, well, they're not willing to do that. They're not willing to do that. The person who says, I'm the master of my life, I'm the captain of my ship. Well, that's a person who isn't willing to be governed or controlled by God. So that prohibits them from entering into the kingdom of God. Why? Well, you can't be a member of the kingdom if you refuse to let the king reign over your life. I mean, that's what it means to be a member of the kingdom, that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. Look, the Christian life is not hard to understand. I'm not saying it's easy to live. I'm just saying it's not hard to figure out. In a nutshell, it's getting off the throne of your life and letting Jesus sit down and take control. That's what happened at the point of salvation. When we gave our heart to Christ, what we were doing is we were saying, Lord, I want you now to take control. I want you to govern my life. I step down, Lord. I abdicate the throne. And now I bow to your lordship. I bow to you as my king. You are now in control of my life. Look, that is the heart of the redeemed, isn't it? I mean, why have we come here today? in part to hear the word of God, of course, but we have come to worship our God because that's the heart we have now. It's, we celebrate that, even as the psalmist said in Psalm 95, verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. See, that is the heart of the redeemed, isn't it? We don't want to control our lives anymore. Good heavens, I made enough, enough mess of my life before I received Christ. We can all attest to that, can't we? The beautiful blessing of Christianity was to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I could get off the throne of my life and say, Jesus, you are so much more better equipped as God to run my life than I am. I give you control, Lord. Here I am, I'm your slave. Whatever you say to me, I will do. Wherever you send me, I will go. But I live in total subjection to your authority now. So proud people can't be saved. I'm not saying that we all deal with pride still. I'm talking about the kind of pride that says, I will not get off the throne of my life. I'm going to be the master of my life, the captain of my ship. Those are the kind of people that can't go to heaven because they're not poor in spirit. And so the principle behind this first beatitude is that we can't do anything, nor do we have anything to offer to God to receive heaven. 
we must lift our eyes toward heaven in brokenness and in total destitution and cry out to God for his mercy. Now, isn't it true that we're living in a day when most of the people we come across in the world don't see it that way, do they? They don't see themselves as sinners who have nothing to offer God to get into heaven. On the contrary, most of them see themselves as good people who, while not perfect, are still good enough to get into heaven. And I run into these people all the time, as I witness you do too. And when a person tells me that, well, you know, I know I'm not perfect, but I think I'm good enough to get into heaven. I say, you want a, you want a bulletin from the Lord? <laughs> Here's a flash for you. Jesus said, if you're not perfect, you're not good enough to get into heaven. If you're not perfect, you're not good enough to get into heaven. Why? Because the Bible defines goodness as moral perfection. Moral perfection. And since none of us are morally perfect, well, we aren't good enough to get into heaven. See, a lot of people don't realize that because pretty much everybody thinks they're a good person. How do you know you're a good person? Well, because I'm not as bad as him. Well, there's always somebody that's worse than you. I don't care how bad you are. There's always somebody, you know, that you can point to and go, well, I'm not as bad as this guy. So I'm good, right? Uh, no, you're not necessarily good just because you're not as bad as him. He's not even the standard. Forget about him or her. Put Jesus next to you. Now, who's good and who's bad? See, that's why Jesus said, there is none good but God. He didn't say there is nobody as good as God, because we could all say, well, that's true. I know I'm not as good as God, but I'm pretty good. Jesus said, no, no, there is nobody good but God, because goodness is defined in the Scriptures as moral perfection. All of us have sinned and have fallen short of God's perfect standard. And when Jesus laid this on the disciples, you know what they said? Well, then, Lord, who can possibly be saved? He said, well, with men, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Again, it's what Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The word sin there is a Greek word that, Greek word that means literally to miss the mark. It was an archery term. Okay, when you missed the bullseye, you had sinned. You had missed the mark. Now, who here has missed the mark? We all have, right? You don't have to raise your hand. We know you. We know you've all missed the mark. I've missed the mark. We've all missed the mark. Paul said that. For all have missed the mark and fallen short of the glory of God. What is that? What is the glory of God? It's sinless perfection. So when people say, well, you know, and I, and I actually was telling first service, I had a guy years ago, and I, maybe I've had maybe one or two other people, but this, in my ministry that I've said this, but this guy was in my office with his wife. He was one of these kind of guys, just treated his wife terribly. He was not a Christian, obviously, and, and she was, and, 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 but it was a mess. And, and, uh, and I began to talk about sin, and at one point I said, wait a minute, I'm, I'm not a sinner. Excuse me? <laughs> I don't sin. You don't sin. You're not a sinner? No, I'm not a sinner. I said, well, you know what? I need to bow before you. I didn't realize Jesus had returned because, you know, Jesus is the only one who was sinless. You're telling me you've never... Look, God said we've all sinned. We have all fallen short of his perfect standard. And the wages of sin is what? Death, eternal death, right? Hell. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We don't get to heaven by being good. We've all missed the mark. None of us are perfect. We get to heaven because of what Jesus did. He lived the perfect life. 
and says, if you put your faith in me, I will take your sins upon me and pay for them in full, and I will give to you in exchange my righteousness. A righteousness, as Paul said in the book of Romans, goes beyond anything you and I could ever hope to have. It's a righteousness that is perfect. It comes from God and is given to those who receive Christ by faith. Salvation, folks, starts with the recognition that we are sinners and have not measured up to God's standard, his standard of moral perfection in our lives. This causes us, and has caused most of us in this room, I'm convinced, but it caused us at one point to come to him like a humble beggar asking for mercy. Remember now, a beggar asks. He doesn't bargain or buy or barter. He begs. The kingdom of heaven is for those who don't try to buy their way in or barter with God using their good works to get in. Listen, the kingdom of heaven is for those who ask out of their poverty for his mercy and then receive salvation as a total gift of his grace. All right, let's look at one more. The second beatitude really goes hand in hand with the first one. In verse 4 we read, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So again, the um, characteristic of a blessed person, one of those characteristics is they mourn. What is the result? What is the benefit of this mourning? They shall be comforted. Now at first glance this seems contradictory. Remember we said the word blessed is a Greek word that literally means oh how happy. But a happiness that goes way down into the heart. But this seems like a kind of a contradiction, doesn't it? At first glance, oh, how happy are the sad? I mean, you know, it doesn't seem like it really matches. It's, something's wrong here. You know, in Greek, there are nine words that the Greeks developed to describe different kinds of sorrow. This word for mourn is the strongest of them all. It describes the most intense kind of mourning possible. That kind which is associated with the death of somebody you loved deeply. And again, it's so contrary to everything the world believes happiness is all about. Because of the people of this world, this kind of sorrow doesn't come from happiness, and it doesn't lead to happiness. So this statement by Jesus seems absolutely absurd. But see, the kind of mourning that Jesus is referring to here, the kind that brings great joy, is because this mourning comes from the heart of a believer who now has the Holy Spirit inside of them, holy, which means when we sin as believers, we grieve, we mourn, we still blow it, we're still weak and susceptible to sin, but when we do blow it as believers, we are convicted, aren't we? We mourn over it. We don't rejoice over sin, we used to, before we got saved, but now, as believers with the Holy Spirit inside of us, when we sin, we grieve over that. But this idea, I think, could also be applied to those unbelievers who experience this mourning over the sin in their lives. How? Because the Holy Spirit is beginning to convict them, beginning to show them that they're living a wrong life. This conviction precedes salvation, doesn't it? A person must mourn over the state of their life, and once they do, they will come to Christ and receive salvation and forgiveness. This is an evidence that the Holy Spirit is working, bringing conviction. This morning is what Paul the Apostle called godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. Just write the scripture down. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. 
Listen to what Paul said. And in this context now, he is talking about unbelievers who are under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and who mourn with this godly sorrow, which eventually leads them to, to repentance in Christ. Paul said, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. In other words, godly sorrow or mourning over my sinful life leads me to repentance. And repentance brings forgiveness and salvation. And listen, that is the ultimate state of blessing and joy. So blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because they're going to be comforted. The Spirit is working, which means they're on the road to salvation. And once they get saved, they are comforted by the Holy Spirit because now their sins are paid for. God's wrath is no longer upon them. They are children of God. They are comforted now by Him. Now look, Satan doesn't want people to be saved, obviously, right? And he knows, he's seen this many times before, where God begins to work, you know, and conviction comes. And he knows where that's all going, towards repentance and salvation. He doesn't want that. So he tries to counterfeit the path that leads to genuine repentance and salvation. How does he do that? Well, he does it one of two ways. First of all, he tries to counterfeit godly sorrow with worldly regret. He tries to counterfeit godly sorrow with worldly regret this is what paul was referring to when he said godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation but listen the sorrow of the world produces death i mean how can a person tell if they are demonstrating genuine repentance or merely worldly regret i mean how do they know that i mean how do we know if a person is truly experiencing godly sorrow or just worldly regret well very easily does it lead to a change i mean has it changed them i mean every criminal in prison today is sorry from a worldly standpoint most of the time sorry they got caught but they are sorry they regret things that they have done people that they have hurt mostly their families and all that they've destroyed because of their crime and life of sin and i would imagine that pretty much every criminal in prison today they regret a lot of things that they have done the problem is, do they regret it enough to change? You know, I've talked to guys over the years who have lived pretty selfish lives and wound up losing their wife and their kids and all, and they regret it. I talk to them, and they're really sorry for how they've treated the people around them that they love. And I'll say, well, do something about it. No, no, pastor, it's too late for me. Oh, baloney. <laughs> Give me that. So you're not really repenting, right? You're not, it's not really godly sorrow. It's worldly remorse, regret. Oh, woe is me. Yeah, I've heard a few people, but it's, it's really made me sad. Okay, see, worldly regret is always self-focused. It's always feelings-oriented. It's not godly sorrow that leads to change. That's the idea. True repentance consists of a threefold action. Let me give it to you quickly. First, it, involve, it involves the awareness and acknowledgement of our sin or wrongdoing. You know, there's a lot of people that won't even acknowledge like this guy was telling you about. They don't even see themselves as sinners. If they do something wrong, they justify it or excuse themselves. It's always somebody else's fault or you know, whatever it might be. So a lot of people are not even willing to acknowledge that they have sin. Today in our culture, I mean, people are being told there is no such thing as sin, Right? There is no ultimate right or wrong. Whatever is right for you is right. You know, my truth is not your truth and vice versa. Whatever your truth is, whatever that might be, go out and live and just, you know, 
Do whatever you think is right. Well, that's the problem today. God is not ruling in people's hearts as kings. Every man is out there doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. That's the problem today. Everyone is trying to control their life instead of yielding to the control of Jesus Christ. Look at the mess we see. So the first step is you need to acknowledge that you're a sinner and what you're involved in is sin, number one. Number two, it involves a change of thinking about the sin we are involved in. All right, you acknowledge it, but are you going to justify it then or excuse it? See, the second step is I acknowledge it and I, and I admit it's wrong because God said it's wrong. Not society says it's okay. Not I feel it's okay in my heart. What I think is okay is right for me. No, God has a standard and God says, look, this is my standard. And it's non-negotiable. It's not the Ten Suggestions. It's the Ten Commandments. And the idea is if you don't do what I have said, you are living in sin. You know, it's like people acknowledge their actions. Okay, I did that, but I don't think that's wrong. Well, you're living with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Yeah, so what's wrong with that? We love each other. We're going to get married someday. Well, that's someday. It's not today. <laughs> and God says today, if you're living together out of wedlock, it's called fornication. It's a sin. I don't care if everyone's doing it. When you stand before the Lord, he's not going to ask you, well, is everyone doing it? Sure, Lord. Oh, I get, come on. Let's forget about it. Everyone's doing it. I mean, it's like, come on. Hey, we have to acknowledge the sin and also acknowledge it's wrong. It is sin. God says it's wrong. That's why it's wrong. And number three, it involves the appropriate actions that make for a change of lifestyle. Hey, godly sorrow always shows itself in repentance, which means to have a change of mind that leads to a change of action or behavior. But here, let me just say this and we'll move on. Satan tries to counterfeit this whole process. He doesn't want you repenting. Now, he's a Christian even. Satan has deceived a lot of Christians. How has he done that? Well, he knows we're saved and he, he's lost us. But he doesn't want us fulfilling our potential in Christ. He doesn't want us as a threat to his kingdom. And so when we sin, if he can somehow mask the road that leads to repentance and restoration, that the Spirit of God is now working in our lives again to maximum capacity, he'll do that, and he's done it quite effectively. See, recognition of personal sin is an important first step. But by itself, listen, it's useless and even dangerous because it tends to make a person think that mere recognition of sin, along with a little remorse, it's really all that's necessary. That's all God wants. How many Christians do you know that will acknowledge their sin and feel bad about it, but never change? And they think, well, because I recognize it's wrong and I'm feeling kind of bad about it, wasn't well, that what God wants? Well, God wants you to give that sin to him and ask him for grace to walk away from it once and for all. Just because you acknowledge your sin, and say, well, I'm feeling badly, but I have this regret. Many Christians think, well, that's really all that God wants, right? I'm good with God now. No, you're really not. Because God doesn't work through worldly regret. He works through godly repentance. And have you ever known somebody who's a Christian who lives in a constant state of regret and remorse, but never changes? Always feeling sorry for how they've hurt people and the wrong things they've done. 
but never sorry enough to get on their knees and say, God, enough is enough. I have sinned. I have continued to sin in defiance of what you have said. I have been selfish, Lord, and I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge it's wrong, and God, by your grace, I want to change. That's repentance. And God will listen to the cries of the humble who truly repent and not the self-pity of those who feel bad about what they've done but really don't want to change or make it right. So number one, Satan tries to counterfeit godly sorrow with worldly regret. Let me finish with this one. Number two, he tries to make sin look harmless and even fun. The Bible says Satan is the god of this world. And as the God of this world, guess who controls the media? The devil does. And Satan tries to get people to laugh at sin, doesn't he? I mean, through the TV sitcoms and the movies and the various entertainers, a lot of these comedians, you know, they're laughing at sin and making light of sin and talking about Christians like they're idiots because they, they want to walk in righteousness and so on, you know. See, if Satan can get you to laugh at sin, you're not going to take it seriously. If you don't take it seriously, you're not going to mourn over it. If you don't mourn over it, you're not going to be broken because of it. If you're not broken because of it, you're not going to repent and get right with God and have God put his hand upon your life again. Very important. I think a lot of this starts in our minds for control of our thinking. I really believe that's where spiritual war, that's ground zero in spiritual warfare is the mind. That's why the Bible says guard your mind. Guard your heart, because out of it flows the issues of life. And transform your thinking away from the world's standards and attitudes and agendas. Transform your thinking by filling your mind with the Word of God. But a lot of Christians aren't doing that. They're just feeding their minds on the garbage of the world. TV, movies, all kinds of things. And what is happening is that they are not taking sin seriously anymore. We're talking about Christians now. Let me ask you something. Do you laugh when evil is portrayed on TV? Do you laugh? Do you laugh at ungodly situations and jokes? See, if you do, and I think all of us have at times, right? We live in the world. There's a lot of people just we come in contact with. They're not believers. And, you know, they're joking around or they're saying things where we catch a show on TV or something and it's an ungodly situation. But we're laughing at it. When we do that, we have to understand something. We have allowed the devil to infiltrate into our thinking. To keep us from grieving over sin by telling us it's no big deal, you know? It's no big deal. And because of it, we no longer grieve at our own sin, let alone the sins of the culture around us. See, as Christians, we not it's, it should be obvious that we should grieve over our sins and want to be holy because it pleases the Lord. But how are we ever going to impact a culture that is so steeped in sin they don't even know what's right or wrong anymore? They're calling good evil and evil good. How are we going to impact the culture if we don't grieve over the sin they're involved in, if we're taking it lightly? You know, the great Scottish evangelist John Knox looked down from his apartment onto the streets in Scotland. On a Saturday night, he saw the drunks staggering out of the bars and the prostitutes in the street corners. And he got down on his face on the floor before God and he prayed, God, give me Scotland or take me home. Because, God, I can't stand to see the sin. I can't stand to see how it's breaking and destroying lives. If you're not going to use me to, to help people to, to get out of this mess, to come to Christ, then, God, then my life is worthless here. Take me home. And he was used by God, and many like him, men and women, who have that kind of heart and burden, 
have been used by God to transform cultures because that's where it starts, with a heart touched by God that says, it's not okay, it's not funny, it's, it's not something to be taken lightly. God takes sin very seriously. And I must also, not only in my own life, but in the lives of those around me, I need to pray that God would open their eyes. They've been taken captive by the devil to do his will, and I have the truth. And Paul says, don't argue with people, but pray for them. And ask God to be gracious, that he might grant them repentance, that they might escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. But again, this is a tactic that the enemy uses to get us to laugh at sin, which lowers our defenses against it and makes us more susceptible to it. And the result is not only do the people of this world, but many Christians no longer take sin seriously. I mean... Look around at the church. Every once in a while, George Barnett does a poll among professing Christians and all, and it's really amazing the attitude today. How many churchgoers, how many people who profess to be Christians have no problem drinking and partying and still doing the same things they used to do, living with their boyfriend or girlfriend, you know, because we love each other and God understands and so on and so forth. It's shocking to see the mentality today. And I'm wondering how many people who go to church and who think their Christians have never mourned over the sin in their lives, and who have joined churches because, let's face it, they're lonely or unhappy, and they find that they have more in common with Christian folks than non-Christian folks because they're really not partiers or drinkers or whatever it might be, and they do like to come to church because everyone is nice, and, and they do nice, they have coffee and cake afterward, and they get together, and you know what I mean? And, and so it's a nice place to hang out, isn't it? If you're not a biker. It's a nice place to hang out. I mean, we have some bikers here too. Gotta love them. They're bikers for Christ, but I'm gonna move on because I'm getting myself in trouble now. I'm just saying, when a person is truly being convicted by the Holy Spirit, there's gonna be that necessary necessary mourning over their sin. And when they receive Christ, something radical takes place. Something changes. And their whole attitude and the way they see things, the way they approach life. Without that, I'm not convinced the person has received Christ. Let's close by turning to Luke chapter 7. Again, a portion of Scripture you're all very familiar with. Let's, but let's read it. I think it really touches on what we're talking about. Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36, we read... Then one of the Pharisees asked Jesus, asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, the Greek implies a notorious sinner. We're all sinners, but this woman was a notorious sinner. Maybe a prostitute or something else, we don't know. And when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet, behind him weeping, and as she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, you know, he just said within his heart, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner, as if he wasn't. It's the problem with religion. You tend to look down at everybody who's not as religious as you, not realizing that your heart is just as defiled as theirs. It's just they're more open about it than you are. Now, Jesus, of course, knew his thoughts. 
And answered and said to him in verse 40, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave both of them. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered into your house, and you gave me no water to wash my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives? Says, who is this guy think he is? Well, I think he thinks he's God. Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. If you compare the Gospels together, what we call the harmony of the Gospels, you will find that this event in Luke 7 follows right on the heels of what took place in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, where Jesus was preaching. And at one point he gives an invitation that says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And it seems that she was there. And it seems that in her heart, at that moment, she opened her heart to Jesus and received salvation. And immediately what happened was she was overwhelmed. First of all, at the depth of her sin before she got saved. How could I have ever lived like that? And then she was overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude for how much the Lord had forgiven her for all she had done. That's what happens when you receive Christ. Something changes, right? Of course, Simon the Pharisee, the very religious guy, I mean, he was sitting at the table with Jesus as an equal. She's kneeling at Jesus' feet as a subordinate. He is her king now. Simon, he thinks he's good enough to get into heaven. He's religious. What more do I need? You need righteousness. And that only comes through Christ. But something happens, guys. And we all have experienced this. How that when God began to work in us, he began to convict our hearts. We began to mourn over the sin in our lives. And that led us to receive Christ, which is the ultimate form of comfort, right? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the first thing that happened was, how did I ever live the way I used to live? And you were just overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude, weren't you? You wanted to fall at his feet and worship him because of what he had done for you. See, this is the thing we don't see in a lot of Christians, so-called today, who go to church. We don't see that brokenness. We don't see that, that hatred of sin. And, I mean, the mourning over it. And they don't, we don't see the corresponding worshiping of the Lord. They come and sing songs. I'm not saying that. There's a difference between singing Jesus' songs and falling at his feet in worship. So may God give us the grace to understand. These are... The first two Beatitudes, but they tell us so much already, don't they? And next week, or next time we meet, God willing, we'll look at the next two.
Father, we thank you so much for your mercy. We thank you so much for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that we who were sinners, chief of sinners, some of us, by your mercy you saved us as we put our faith in Jesus. And you've come into our hearts through your Holy Spirit. You've washed us clean of our sins. You've given us a heart that wants to obey you now. And when we blow it, Lord, you grieve and you convict us and we grieve and mourn. And we confess our sins to you and you are faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us again from all unrighteousness and get us back into fellowship with you. We just praise you, Lord. You're so good to us. And we fall at your feet, Lord Jesus. We acknowledge you as our king, as the one who has the right and the authority to rule and to reign over our lives. Forgive us, Lord, for our self-willed attitudes. Forgive us, Lord, now that we are your people, for trying to control our lives any longer. Give us the grace, Lord, to surrender completely every day that you would take full control because we are your slaves. You are our master. And we just thank you, Lord, and pray that you would give us grace to continue on, Lord, that you would open our eyes to understanding, Lord, all the things you have placed here for our learning because these qualities are the qualities of those who are truly blessed. And the result is great joy, great blessings. Lord, we want to be your people. We want to be submitted to you, Lord. We want to be blessed. We want to fill, be filled with your joy. Give us grace to walk in these attributes. Lord, we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.